Hi, I'm John Freeman, the editor of Granta Magazine, and welcome to our first podcast. You'll hear me talking to Elizabeth McCracken, who has a story in our new issue, themed Going Back. And afterwards, you'll hear her reading from the story at our first event from the launch of this issue in London at the British Library. And stay tuned to our next episodes, in which you'll hear readings from that same event at the British Library from Salman Rushdie and Richard Russo. It's a great pleasure to be here in Holland Park with Elizabeth McCracken, who is the author of two novels, a short story collection, and a memoir, an exact replica of a figment of my imagination. She has a story called Property in the new issue of Granta, themed to Going Back, um, which is out right now. Elizabeth, um, I'm a huge fan of the stories and Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry? And um, I was wondering what the lack of hurry was about writing more stories. Have you been writing one or is, uh, stories before this one, or is this I, oldish? I have. I, you know, I wrote a collection of short stories when I was in my early 20s. And then I started writing novels, and for a long time I thought that was it, that I... I, I think novels are much easier to write than short stories. They're baggy, they're forgiving, you can throw everything into them. And I sort of felt that I had stretched my brain out of shape for writing short stories. And then, maybe five or six years ago, I started writing short stories every now and then, and realized how much I still didn't know about writing short stories, but also took great pleasure in them. And I also had a, a novel that I was working on for about five years which um, fell apart. And it actually eventually fell into about six short stories. And to tell you how unbelievably bad a novel it was, there are no characters repeated in these six short stories. Like, you wouldn't know that they were part, they were part of the same book. And, um, and I'm sort of surprised myself a few months ago by realizing that I have, I have almost another collection wow. together. And Property is not one of those. Property is absolutely a standalone short story. Mm. The story is about uh, a man who suffers a really sort of terrible loss and, and winds up um, in a s- sort of sabbatical sublet. And maybe just describe a little bit about what he finds when he gets there. It's filthy. <laughs> it's a uh, <laughs> It's strange for me to think about it because in, in a, this is in some ways the most autobiographical story I've ever written. You've lived no, in some shitholes. I have lived in some shitholes, and I lived in one particular shithole. And we were talking last night, uh, no, talking night before last about things being shorter and longer. And one of the reasons this is a short story is that the real um, inspiration for writing it was a real estate transaction gone bad which probably wouldn't sustain an entire novel, but um, my husband and I had come to Saratoga Springs, New York, and rented a house, set and seen, and it was really quite dirty. And we cleaned it up, and this is everything that this character does, and and lived in it, and then left, and then um, when we had the the reckoning with the landlord. Mm. uh, Really, the inspiration for the story is that or we threw out some really old spices in this sublet, and the landlord was really upset with us for throwing out spices. Em- emotionally upset? Um, yes, I, I think so. And did you wonder why? That maybe they were more significant than just the tasty flavors they had. <laughs> of, of elderly cumin. The <laughs> <laughs> je ne sais quoi, a really old oregano. Um... Yes, and and I, I mean, I think I wrote the story both because I was I was surprised 
by their emotions and also at mine for there's that strange feeling of having being asked to take care of somebody else's property Mm. um, as we were when you know as anyone who sublets a place does and you do your best but then you realize that they of course have a completely different relationship to everything in the house than you do even the old spices Mm. there's I feel there's some sort of thematic and just emotional overlap with um, your previous book, the memoir, an exact figment of a replica of my, an exact replica of a figment of imagination. Um, and I wondered if, if you could talk just a little bit about that. Um, were you writing this piece in the wake of writing that book, or were you writing it at the same time? You know, I wrote the, the story first. Really? Um, yeah. I wrote it. Um, it may be one of the few things I I wrote it when I was pregnant and generally speaking my brain is pretty bad I, I can I can write to commission but I don't necessarily get a lot of creative work done or haven't I talk like like I'm pregnant my entire life and, but I was I was pregnant with my second child and I um, I really we, we I, I wrote it in a couple of days, probably. Um, oh, we should probably pay you about half of what we paid you then, right? <laughs> is that- I'm hoping. I'm hoping it works. It's, the funny thing is, is that I wrote this short story quite quickly, and I wrote my memoir in three weeks or something like that. And those are personal records that I think I will never um, top. You know, mm-hmm. I'm generally speaking an unbelievably slow writer, so in fact. My hourly rate for this short story is actually pretty good, but if you compare it to my hourly rate <laughs> wage for writing lifetime, it's still not really... Yeah, I might as well be picking fruit off the books somewhere. <laughs> I think Eudora Welty used to do that. She would write stories in one sitting. Of course, you know, an all-night sort of writing session or something, but some of her stories, which feel like they were sort of carved out of oak, were actually written quite quickly, which I always find kind of terrifying. You know, it's novels I write really, really slowly. And some short stories take me a long time. But thinking about the difference between novel writing and short story writing, because, you know, when you first start writing a novel, you feel like you can write it, you can hold it all in your head. Mm. You understand it, you can see it. And then you start writing it and you realize what a long process it is and how hard it is to keep the whole thing in your head. If you're you have the idea for a short story and you have the time and energy to write it quickly, there's sort of no gap between the imaginary short story you have in the head and the work on the page, mm. I think. And you know, as I say, I've written short stories in, in both ways and, and it's much nicer when you can write it quite quickly. And I, I, I polished the story, but the, the actual composition of it was, mm. was quite quick. The story is full of all these things, you know, blasted Mrs. Butterworth, you know, broken bottle of syrup and just tchotchkes and bad art and stale spices. And I mean, you get a real sense of just how dirty this place is, but also just the kind of melancholy of objects that, um, you know, all of us feel if you grew up with messy parents, I suppose. And as we were talking on the panel here in London on Monday, 
Um, you mentioned, you know, God, if I wrote a memoir about my childhood, I'd be talking about the styrofoam things that wigs hang on and tuna fish sandwiches. And it made me wonder if, if you grew up, um, you know, not necessarily in a messy household, but just around lots of things. And if you feel that pull, not just, you know, because of loss, but to the nostalgia that's embedded in objects. I feel that double pull of total nostalgia for objects and a horror of becoming overwhelmed by them. I mean, I don't think that there's a, anybody who likes books and magazines who does not think of the Collier Brothers as the most, you know, the, the <laughs> cautionary tale, always being frightened of being crushed under a stack of newspapers. Um, Do you have, like, huge stacks of National Geographic and the New Yorker? Or? I don't. One of the great advantages of... I've, I've moved every few months for some years now. Are you on the run? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. As opposed to just being, being really disorganized about yeah. life in general. Quick, we've got her in the room. <laughs> She's sitting down. You know, the, the, but, you know, I've been on the run, but um, you know, we've been moving... We finally got it down so that we didn't feel like we needed to move with our giant heavy bust of Hans Christian Andersen, which for a while we actually did take places with us. doesn't sound really sensible. Um, so I, and that's been, that's, that's kept the, the thing, thing in check a bit. Though, um, I just moved out to Texas and, you know, we unpacked all our, all of our books. And one of the things that I unpacked was like, you know, all of my old issues of Granta. And I was just really happy to see it. You know, I thought, I, you know, I, I'd forgotten that I owned all these copies, and there they are. Hmm. And that's great. Um, where, where have you been storing all this stuff? I'm sorry to focus on trivia, but... We... I can't even begin to tell you the amounts of money I've paid over the past few years to maintain things. things that I already owned. It's storage areas. I had a storage area for, for seven years. And at the moment, I... I'm not paying rent on any storage area anywhere, and it pleases me. So all your stuff is in one place? All of my stuff is in one place. So what are you working on now? Is it, are you work, do you think you'll move towards a collection? Are you working on a novel? Or, um, God willing, I'm almost... Not God willing. I don't even know who willing. Um, I'm pretty close to finishing a novel. I mean, I, it's third or fourth draft at mm-hmm. this point. Um, and and I have dreams of finishing it this summer. And then I probably have a story or two to write to finish the collection. I have to, with my first collection, I wrote them all within two years. And I was, after about the first four, I was aware that I was writing a collection. Mm. With these stories, I was sort of writing one story after another. And I haven't, I honestly haven't read them all together to see how they work as a collection. So, Do, do you feel like because we selected you as a best American novelist, that it's a betrayal of that moniker to write stories again? <laughs> You're not going to take it away, are you? <laughs> we revoked <laughs> it. <laughs> oh. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I was going to say that I'm unaccountably nervous and awkward to be here, but I'm considering my co-panelists, I think it's quite accountable. Um, I'm going to read from the start of a story called Property. The ad should have said... For rent, six-room hovel, quarter-filled Mrs. Betterworth's bottle in living room, sandy sheet throughout, lingering smell. Or, wanted, 
gullible tenant for small house must possess appreciation for chipped pottery, mid-1960s abstract silkscreen canvases, mouse-nibbled books on Georgia O'Keeffe. Or, available June 1st, shithole. <laughs> Instead, the posting on the website called the house at 55 Bayberry Street old and characterful and sunny, furnished, charming, on a quiet street not far from the college and not far from the ocean. Large porch, separate artist studio. Not bad for the young married couple then, Stoney, Bedauer, and Pamela Graff, he 39, red-headed, soft-bellied, long-limbed and beaky, a rare and possibly extinct water bird, she blonde and soft and hot-headed and German and sentimental. She looked like the plump-cheeked, naughty heroine of a German children's book, having just sawed off her own braids with a knife. Her expression dared you to teach her a lesson. Like many sentimentalists, she was estranged from her family. Stoney had never met them. America, she said that month. All right, your turn. Show me America. For the three years of their courtship and marriage, they'd moved every few months. Berlin, Paris, Galway, near Odense, near Edinburgh, Rome, and now a converted stone barn in Normandy that on cold days smelled of cow pats and on hot days like lost crayons of tourist children. Soon enough, it would be summer, and the barn would be colossally expensive and filled with English people. Now it was time for Maine, where Stoney had accepted a two-year job cataloging a collection of 1960s underground publications, things printed on rice paper and popsicle sticks and cocktail napkins. It fell to him to find the next place to live. We'll unpack my storage space, he said. I have things. Yes, my love, she said. I have things, too. You have a duffel bag, he said. You have your clothing. You have a salt shaker shaped like a duck with a chipped beak. She cackled a very European cackle, pride and delight in her ownership of a lusterware duck whose name was Trudy, the sole exhibit in the museum. When I am dead, people will know nothing about me. This was a professional opinion. She was a museum consultant. In Normandy, she was helping set up an exhibition in a stone cottage that had been owned by a Jewish family deported during the war. In Paris, it had been the atelier of a minor artist who'd been the longtime lover of a major poetess. In Denmark, a workhouse museum. Her specialty was the era of recent evacuation. You knew something terrible had happened to the occupants, but you hoped it still might be undone. She set contemporary spectacles on desktops and snuggled appropriate shoes under beds and did not overdust. Too much cleanliness made a place dead. In Rome, she arranged an exhibit of the commonplace belongings of Ezra Pound, chewed pencils, drinking glasses, celluloid dice, dog-eared books. Only the brochure suggested a connection to greatness. At the Hans Christian Andersen house in Odense, where they were mere tourists, she lingered in admiration over Andersen's upper plate and the length of rope that he traveled with in his suitcase in case of hotel fire. You can tell more from dentures than from years of diaries, she'd said then. Dentures do not lie. But she herself threw everything out. She did not want to exhibit even the smallest bit of her. Now, Stoney said, solemnly, I never want to drink out of Ikea glasses again, or sleep in Ikea sheets, or, and this one is serious, cook with Ikea pans. Your husband owns really expensive pans. How about that? I am impressed, she said, and you are bourgeois.
your lease, he said. I am terrified, said Pamela, smiling with her beautiful angular and American teeth, and then perhaps we will afford to have a baby. She was still, as he would think of it later, casually alive. In two months she would be, according to the doctors, miraculously alive, and later still, alive in a nearly unmodifiable twilight state. Or too modifiable, technically alive. Now she walked around the barn in her bra, which as usual was a little too small, and her underpants, as usual, a little too big, though she was small-breasted and big-bottomed. Her red-framed glasses sat on her face at a tilt. My ears are not plumb, she always said. It was one of the reasons they belonged together. They were flea market people, put together out of odd parts. She limped. Even her name was pronounced with a limp, the accent on the second syllable. For a full month after they met, he'd thought her name was Camilla, and he never managed to say it aloud without lining it up in his head beforehand. Pamilla, Pamilla, the way he had to collect German words for sentences ahead of time and then properly distribute the verbs. In fact, he did that with English sentences, too, when speaking to Pamilla when she was alive. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And stay tuned to our events page because you can check in there and see where we're going to be having events and readings and discussions next.